Well, we are now coming to the end of Jeremiah. Actually, next week we start in the New Testament. We are going to be heading to a little five-chapter book that's probably going to take us longer to get through than it did 52 chapters in Jeremiah. Uh, we're going to be going to the book of 1 John. And uh, what I do is I kind of keep track of what I've preached on and what books I've preached on and characters and everything else. And in 20 years, I came to realize I've never done a study on 1 John. So that's where we're headed. Uh, 1 John is a short little book, five chapters, but um, a tremendous amount of... I, I tell people two books that I encourage new Christians to read are James and 1 John. 1 John talks about the way, the way a Christian is. James talks about what a Christian should do. And so, and they're, they're, they're tied in real close. So we're going to kind of be looking at, in the book of 1 John, you know, what, what does a Christian really look like? And, and how can we know? And what does it mean to us? And the implications of what it is that we're supposed to be as Christians. So uh, it should be an interesting statement. Like I say, it's, you, 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 we're only going to cover like three or four verses at a time because it's a uh, it's just a book that's packed so uh, that's where we're headed right now we're going to finish up jeremiah when we left off we left off at uh, chapter 45 we're actually going to cover the last six seven chapters uh, in the book we've learned a lot over the course of uh, 16 weeks actually we've spent in the book of jeremiah jeremiah was a prophet who simply said yes to god it's that simple. But God asked some really tough things of him. And so Jeremiah went and he preached in the last 40 years. Uh, he spent 40 years trying to get the people to turn back to God. And they refused. And as they refused over and over again, God said, look, I've drawn a line. And until that line, you know, I need you to repent. I need you to repent. I need you to repent. And they refused and they refused and they refused. When we last left off, the children of Israel, uh, or Judah in particular, had gone into captivity. There was a small group left. They came to Jeremiah and said, what are we supposed to do? And Jeremiah said, well, I'll go and ask God, but whatever God says, that's what you've got to do. And they said, oh, yeah, sure. And so Jeremiah came back and said, God said, you stay here in Jerusalem. You stay here in the land. God will protect you. And they said, nah, I don't think so. We're going to go back to Egypt. And so the irony is the children of Israel who started in Egypt, were delivered from Egypt, walked in the wilderness for 40 years, went into promised land, clean, sparkling, gave them everything, God took care of everything, at the end decide, let's go back to Egypt. And what happens is, as they go back to Egypt, it's the same story all over again. You would think that Judah would have learned and that they would learn to follow God, and that when they get to Egypt, they would follow God, but they don't. They continue on worshiping the idols, embracing new idols, and so finally, God says, Jeremiah, you got to go talk to him one more time. And Jeremiah does, and he says, look, you're doing the same thing you did in, in, in Judah, and God's not going to put up with it. And you either turn and change, or God's going to wipe you out here. And they refused to listen again, and God wiped uh, wiped them out there in Egypt. So it's a really sad story. So when we come to uh, the passage that we're, passage we're going to look at today, here's what happens. Jeremiah is going to preach to surrounding nations. And there are nine nations that he addresses. And we're not going to look at all, we're going to look at two. But he addresses nine different nations. And basically the message is all the same. 
follow God. And if you don't, this is what's going to happen. And so out of those nine nations, by the way, uh, three of them no longer exist. Six of them do. So he talks to them. I'm going to rattle them off pretty quick and jump, uh, jump around a little bit. Uh, in chapter 46, he addresses two messages to Egypt and basically says, look, um, you're going to be destroyed. Now, again, Egypt and Babylon were the powerhouses of the day. So to look at Egypt, and, you know, some of you have seen, like, the ruins and the pyramids and the Sphinx and all that kind of stuff. To look at a nation in its height and say you're going to be wiped out was like, yeah, right. But he does. He addresses, in that chapter, he addresses Egypt. Then he addresses the Philistines, um, which were a little bit north of there. And he says, look, you're going to be taken over by Babylon. And you know the Philistines. They're the ones with David and Goliath and all those stories. And uh, he addresses them that they need to turn. He addresses five nations, Moab, Edom, Amnon, Damascus, and Kedor, which is Arabia. And he says, look, God's going God's to wipe out if you don't return to him. If you don't acknowledge him, and of course, all these nations were nations that worshipped other gods. And uh, actually, one of the nations, uh, he addresses the idea that you will be restored. And it's interesting. Those nations are actually Iran and um, Persia. He comes to chapter 48, and that's where we're going to focus this morning. And he addresses a nation called Moab. And that's where we want to look at our, our, our lesson today. Moab, Genesis, or, uh, Jeremiah chapter 48. Here's what it says. <coughs> Moab has been at rest from youth, like wine left on its dreads. In other words, it was, it was fermenting, and, and I guess in wine there's a process that once it ferments, you put it in bottles and all that kind of thing, but they just kind of, it talks about it just kind of left there, it just kind of stayed there, fermenting. Not poured from one jar to another. She has not gone into exile. Uh, let me give you a little background. Moab was off the beaten path, all right? So in the course of Judah and Israel going into captivity and all that, and all the armies coming in and taking them over, and Babylon coming in and taking over, and all the wars, and, and this nation fighting against this nation, in the course of all of that, no one messed with Moab. We're off the beaten path. It, they weren't worth the time, honestly. Uh, it would be like if somebody decided that a foreign country came to the United States, took us all over, decided they wanted to make their capital Iowa, and they were going to conquer all of Iowa. I guarantee you, in their list of towns to conquer, Holly Springs would not make the list. We are off the beaten path, all right? It's not like some nation's going to come in and go, okay, let's go get Holly Springs. No, it's not going to happen. Why? Because we're small, insignificant, off the beaten path. That was Moab at the time. That was Moab. And so Jeremiah is... is preaching to Moab, and it says she has not gone into exile. Nobody's messed with Moab. Um, they're not poured from one jar to another. The, the idea was that when a nation would come in, it would change leadership, and, and then it would change leadership again, and then it would change leadership, and they were continually battling. No, none of that happened to Moab. Moab just kind of sat back and relaxed. And it says um, she tastes as she did. Her aroma was unchanged. This is a, a Hebrew idea that when you... When you became fearful, you sweat. And when you sweat, you stunk. That's kind of like, you know, I've been working outside all afternoon, and I come in, and I'm all sweaty, and I go, hi, honey, don't touch me. Don't 
you stink. Go take a shower, then come back and you can hug me. But until then, I love you unconditionally, but here's my condition. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it's that kind of idea, all right? And so what happened was they would sweat with fear and nervousness and anxiety and not knowing what's going to happen and when the enemy's going to attack and when the enemy's going to go. And he says, her, their sense not changed, their aroma's unchanged. They've never had to live in fear. They never had to sweat it out, so to speak, is what he's saying. And notice what he goes on to say. But, oh, no, no, go back, go back, go back. But the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send men who will pour from jars, and they will pour her out. They will empty her jars and smash her jugs. He says, here's what's going to happen now. You've been resting in peace all these years. Nobody's bossed with you, but God is going to deal with you. And God is going to literally pour you from nation to nation. is going to continue to take you over and just smash everything that you've got. And notice what he goes on to say. Moab will be ashamed of Chemosh as the house of Israel was ashamed when they trusted in Bethel. And this is the idea that they worshipped at other places rather than God. And then notice what happened. It goes on. And here's what he says in chapter 40. We have heard of Moab's pride. Her overweening pride and conceit. Her pride and arrogance and the haughtiness of her heart. I know her insolence, but it is futile, declares the Lord. And her boasts accomplish nothing. He goes on in that passage to talk about how God is going to deal with them because of their pride. Um, here's the lesson for us in, in, in Jeremiah addressing Moab. It's very simple for us. Moab had become self-sufficient. Moab said, we don't need God. We don't need it. We're just going to trust in ourselves. And we're going to put our confidence in us. I mean, we're okay. We're off the beaten path. Nobody's going to mess with us. We're good. No, I mean, you know, look at all the nations around us and all the battles and all the, all the squirmishes and all the fights, but we're okay. Doesn't affect us. We're okay. We really don't need to follow God. We don't need to do that kind of stuff. We're good. We're okay. We're self-sufficient. So we don't need any of that. And Jeremiah comes to him and says, no, let me tell you something. God's going to deal with that pride. God's going to deal with that arrogance. God's going to deal with that idea that you really don't need him because you really do. I wonder sometimes if that's where we are as a country. Because often we've said, you know, look, the whole God thing, uh, let's just get away from that as a nation. I wonder if that's where we are sometimes as individuals. You think about it for a minute. Years ago, you would get up and you would look at your crop and you would pray about the weather. Now, we check the weather channel. We find out when it's going to rain. We plan our harvest or our planting or our spraying accordingly. In the old days, the best chance you had of knowing what the weather was going to be was the Farmer's Almanac. We all know how accurate that was. See, we have developed a culture where we can actually go pretty much all day without thinking much about God at all. We have developed a routine in our lives where, unfortunately, we just don't think about God that much during the week during the morning, during the day. And if we do, for a lot of us, what happens is we have our little pigeonhole God time. 
You know what I mean? We get up in the morning, we have our devotions, we check it off of our to-do list, we close our Bible, we go out on our day, and we really don't think about it anymore the rest of the day. If we're not careful, we become like Moab. We become self-sufficient. We become proud because the reality of it is, you know, if I have a big crisis today, I'll, 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 I'll call and pray to God. But short of that, car breaks down, and we don't think about praying, we think about getting the mechanic. Bill comes in unexpectedly, or health issue comes up, we, we, t-t-t-t-t. Something happens within our family, what do we do? We go talk to our friends or our, 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 our family or other people. We don't think about going to God first. Because... Are we not in the same place Moab is? You know, and, and we live in a culture, by the way, in an agrarian culture that encourages that. I mean, the reason a lot of you live in the country, because you just don't want to be around people. You like your space. I love it. I had somebody come out to the house yesterday, and they were visiting and um, doing some stuff, and he, came, he goes, where's your closest neighbor? It's about a mile down the road. And it's really nice. I said, it'd be really hard to move back in the city. I like my space. And you know, that means you have to be a little more independent because it means that when you go to the grocery store, you, it's not around the corner, so you've got to kind of stock up stuff. And it means that uh, you know that you might get snowed in a little bit, so you, know, you get like a backup generator and you fill the canning shelves full of food that, uh, you know, stock full. And the reality of it is... The entire world could close and you could live for another couple of months. Why? Because we like that independence and that self-sufficiency. It's who we are oftentimes as country people. When we become that as Christians, that becomes dangerous. We become like Moab. And God has a way of teaching us that you need to be dependent upon me. And so Moab went for all these years all these years, like 900 years when you figure it all out, Moab went all of that time and didn't have any trouble. And God said, you know, I'm going to teach you you do need me. And God has a way of doing that. Don't go down that road. Don't go down that road of, of you know what, I, I'm pretty self-sufficient. I'm okay. I don't, I, don't, I don't need God until it's a crisis. It's a dangerous way to live. And then he addresses the Babylonians, which is the fact that, that Jeremiah preaches to them, actually in two ways, and we're going to try to show you both, it preaches to them and says the things to them that he says is, 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 is unbelievable. Because you need to understand, they had been taken captive by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were, were just marching through, destroying nation after nation after nation, taking it over. I mean, those were the days of Nebuchadnezzar. Those were the days of, of the height in all of their glory. Those were the days that when, when an army was outside the city, they were partying because they knew God, no one could take over their city. They were that well defended. And so Jeremiah now talks about Babylon, and here's what he says. He goes on, he goes on in uh, chapter 50. And he says, announce and proclaim among the nations. Lift up a banner and proclaim it. Keep nothing back. But say, Babylon will be captured. Bel will be put to shame. Bel, um, 
Fuching, Marduk, filled with terror. This was uh, the, the, the main god of Babylon. Her images will be put to shame and her idols filled with terror. A nation from the north will attack her and lay waste to the land. By the way, this was the Medes and the Persians. Remember the big, the big statue? And the head of gold and then the Medes and the Persians. All, that's what's going to happen. Um, going on. We'll attack it late. None will live in it. Both men and animals will flee away. In those days at that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah together will go in tears to seek the Lord their God. They will ask the way to Zion and turn their faces toward it. They will come and bind themselves to the Lord, an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. He said the desolation and, 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 and the, the destruction of Babylon is going to be so great that the people of Israel and Judah just want to go back to the land. That, by the way, that's where you have Ezra and Nehemiah and, and, and those books. So that's what he says. He says, look, Babylon's going to be laid waste. And, 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 and it would be like me telling you that in days ahead, America's going to be utterly destroyed. We won't even be recognized as a nation on the planet. We will be leveled. There will be nothing left in Washington. There will be no Chicago. There will be no, no Dallas. There will be no New York. There will be no Los Angeles. Nothing. The entire country is going to be just laid bare, and no one will want to live in it for thousands and thousands of years. It will be desolate. And you would look at me going, yeah, right. You know, you know about our army? You know about our wealth? You know about this? You know about that? Some of you go, well, you know, I can see America being destroyed, but not at that level. When Jeremiah stands up and says, Babylon is going to be laid waste, that's what he was saying. Because this was, at that time, one of the greatest nations on the planet. And you know the story. You remember? You remember how this happens? When they called Daniel in because there's handwriting on the wall, and he says, interpret it, and he said, your weight in the balances and found wanting. And historically, we know that that night, they came underneath the city and destroyed it. And they came in and they are the ones who ruled. Here's the story. This is Jeremiah talking about it way over in Egypt. And it's going to happen way over there. But here's the beauty of Jeremiah. How does Jeremiah get that message to Babylon? Listen to this. Uh, uh, I think it's 51 or 52. This is the message, Jeremiah. It, what happens is when you get to chapter 51, it goes back to a story about Jeremiah and what he did. Jeremiah knew he had preached that they were going to go into captivity, right? He had, he had preached that whole message. So he knew that was what was going to happen. So here's what he does ahead of time. This is a message Jeremiah gave the staff officer Shariah, son of Noah, son of Massa, when he went to Babylon with Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year of his reign. Jeremiah had written on a scroll about the disasters that would come upon Babylon. All that had been recorded concerning Babylon. He said to Shariah, when you get to Babylon, see that you read these words aloud. And then say, O Lord, you have said you will destroy this place so that neither man nor animal will live in it and it will be desolate forever. When you finish reading this scroll, tie a stone to it, throw it in the, into the Euphrates. Then say, so will Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster I'll bring upon her, and her people will fall. The words of Jeremiah end here. So 
What Jeremiah does before they go into captivity, before he goes over to Egypt, he gets one of, his, one of the guys that he can trust, this Sarah guy, Sarah, however you pronounce it. Now, think about what he's doing. He's asking this guy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this scroll. When you get to Babylon, as a prisoner, I want you to gather people together. I want you to read it. I want you to tie a stone to it. I want you to chuck it in the Euphrates River. And I want you to sink. And when it sinks, I want you to tell people, this is what's going to happen to Babylon. And you said, let me sign up for that job. This guy does it, by the way. In fact, in chapter 52, it comes to a review of the life of what has happened in the destruction of Jerusalem and everything else. And it talks about this guy, and it says that he was executed. So it was kind of like his last message, his last lecture, so to speak. And it was all over for him. So he paid a price for delivering this message. But Jeremiah was smart enough to figure out, you know what? And here's the point. I can't preach to them over here because they're over there, but I can still get my message over there. And the message was, Babylon, you need to turn back to God. But Jeremiah was so passionate about what he was doing that he wanted to make sure that message got there. So I think there's a lesson from Jeremiah. One of the lessons is this idea of what message are you going to carry on in your life? And his deal, Jeremiah knew I couldn't do it, so he, he, he set up, if you will, a legacy, a way to accomplish his legacy for, for that message to carry on. And his message did, and, and it made an impact. The guy lost his life. The thing about Babylon is, um, anybody know how Babylon originated? Anybody know? Come on, think about it. Babylonian. Huh? Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. So, if you can think about it for a minute, Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, why did they build the tower? What's that? They wanted, yeah, they wanted to get, there's two reasons. They said, we want to ascend into the heavens, and anybody know the other reason? We wanted everybody to know how great we were. And that's one of the reasons God came down and confounded the languages at that point. Because up until that point, everybody speaks one language. He said, God said, no, no, no. I'm going to send confusion, Babel, so that they can't communicate. But their purpose in building the tower was to send up in the heavens so that everybody would, and that everybody would notice them. In other words, here, let me, let me put a, 2013 spin on it it's all about us we want everybody to notice us it's all about me it's all about our nation our king we want everybody to be able to talk about our great tower and we want them to know that we're the ones who built it it was all us you didn't think of it we did it's us and when you think of the tower of babel i want you to think about us see and god says look I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy that thing. Because it's not about you. And, and, and the whole Marduk thing, and, and when you study the, the history behind Babylon, and you study the tower, and you study all that kind of thing, you start to see that that's exactly what this thing was about. It was about them. Which I think is a great lesson for us. How much of our life is about us? 
You know, we talked about that in Sunday school this morning, about the idea of learning to be ever-present in the moment. <clears throat> and talk to, as it applies here, it's easy to walk in here and to come in here for you. And I'm not saying that's a really bad thing, but a lot of times what happens is, why do we go to church? Because I want to learn. I want to grow. It's about me. And that's great. That's a part of it. But you need to understand, that is exactly what I said. It is a part of it. You see, if you make church all about you learning and you growing and you, here's what will happen. At some point, it won't be enough. At some point, you will go, you know... I don't like this, and I don't like that, and I wish we could change that, and I don't like this. But why? Because it's about you. It's about you. And in the end, that will, that will start to impact you. Because it's about you. When you make a transition from church being about you to church being about others, here's what you'll find. You'll find that the experience of church, if you will, takes on a whole new life. See, if you walk into this place and make it about you, it's easy to, as we talked about in Sunday school, not be present. Why? Because your life is about you. So you're thinking about what you got to do this week or what text you got or, or you know, okay, who's, let me get this cleared on my schedule and, oh, yeah, look at what's going on on Facebook or I got a tweet about this. That, that's what we think about. What am I to-do list have I got to do, and how can I get it all done? And, and, and your mind can go all those places. Why? Because the whole experience is about you. And I'm thrilled you're here. I'm glad you're here. I work hard to be able to make the message appropriate to be able to impact you, but it's a small part of it. Because, you see, church is about, think about it, what's the name of this place? Yeah, Bible, which is what I'm doing now, teaching, and fellowship. Why? Because it's also about others. So you see, when I walk in on a Sunday and I go, you know what? Yeah, it's about me. I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to stretch. But I also want to find that person that looks discouraged and encourage them. I also want, you know, I had this neat thing happen in my life, and so I want to share that with children. Or I walk in and go, you know what? Um, I know so-and-so's been having a really tough time, so I jotted them a note that I'm going to hand them on Sunday. See, then it's not about me. It's about what I can do. It's about how I can impact. It's about how I can minister to someone else. Your job. When it's about the paycheck... Eventually, eventually, there won't be enough. I mean, I know paycheck's never enough. But, I mean, eventually, it's not going to be enough. Why? Because it's about the paycheck. And that's what you're focused on. But when your job becomes a ministry where it's like, who can I help in my company today? Who can I encourage? Who can I take to lunch? And when you can take that outside of church or work, it even gets more impressive. Who can you email this week and encourage? Who can you text and say, hey, look, thinking of you, appreciate you. 
it changes the dynamic of what life is all about. And the problem with Babel, it was all about them. And God said, you need to know. You continue to live like that, you continue to put your trust in all this other stuff, I'm going to show you that it's not about you. You think you're so great and you think you're so powerful, I'm going to decimate the whole place. And by the way, Babylon was not rebuilt. The area that was attacked laid waste, even to this day. They've just now started archaeological digs to find out some of the stuff that was there. It was laid waste for all of these years, and yet this was one of the, at this time, was the greatest nation on the planet because eventually they even came over and took over Egypt. Wiped out level. Why? Because they made it all about them. And I think that's the danger. Great lessons in that thing for us. And I just want to encourage you along these lines. Be careful life doesn't become all about you. You've heard me say it over and over again, you know. I love, I love being together with you people, but you need to know. If you came to me and said, PJ, we want to design worship so it's all about you. It'd be like the most awesome church ever, but nobody would come but me. Because my tastes are not going to be your tastes. That's one of the reasons, by the way, I love corporate worship. It's one of the reasons, by the way, we encourage children to be in the service. You know why? Because if I get somebody to come in here and go, you know, Pastor... I really don't like all those little kids running around. I'm going to say you know that I love you. But those kind of churches where there are no kids running around are dead churches. Those little kids running around are the kids that one day may stand up here or sit over here and play or give children's sermon or be the preacher here. Just learn to duck them and dodge them. You know what? Because I don't think we can have enough of them. And it's just fine with me. And you're like, well, you know, they're so distracting. I mean, like they play in the aisle and they got their cars and they got, really, do you remember what it was like to be four? And you go, and you know, and I don't like to bring them because I feel so embarrassed. Let me tell you something. You Mark my words. Those kids are learning 10 times more than you ever imagined they would learn. In fact, bottom line, they learn more than you because they absorb everything. Good and bad. You know, that's why I have to be careful sometimes because I'll, I'll use a term. I, I, for years, I used the word stupid. Until I had parents come to me going, <laughs> actually, little kids coming up and going, my mom says you can't use the word stupid. And I'm like, you know what? Your mom's absolutely right. I'm sorry. And I had to get rid of the word stupid um, from using it when I was preaching. Why? Because they, they held me accountable. It's a good thing. No, no, no. Why? Because you see, it's not about us. It's about them. And, and, and we gotta, we got to realize that, okay? In worship, in ministry, in, in what we do all week long. We don't want to be like Babel where it's all about us. And, and we don't want to be about Moab where we trusted in ourselves and we really don't need God. We need that balance. We know it is about God and, and, and God can use it. So uh, let me wrap it up. The book of Jeremiah, I, 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 there's all kinds of takeaways. You know, we've used the illustrations and all those kinds of things. Uh, let me pull three out from the whole book. The first one is, sometimes God asks you to do the difficult and the unusual. And when you look at the life of Jeremiah, God asked him to do some really difficult things. God didn't ask him to change the nation. God just asked him to present the message. 
The results were with God, not with Jeremiah. All God asked of Jeremiah is, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be obedient, and I want you to be faithful. That's what I want. And this is what I'd say to us this morning. Sometimes God might be asking you to do the unusual or the difficult. All he wants is obedience and faithfulness. Jeremiah is one of my heroes, and here's why. He preached 40 years with no results. Jonah, who was a backslidden prophet of God, who I think probably had the same attitude I would have had when God asked him to go preach to his enemies, and they all got saved. I mean, it would, our modern-day parallel would be in the book of Jonah if God called you to go preach to... Um, God said, look, I want you to go and I want you to preach to the Somali pirates. And you go, first of all, I might lose my life. And then secondly, you go in and preach to them. I and mean, the bottom line is, with what they're doing, you just assume they all went away anyway. And God would deal with them and judge them. And you go to preach to them and then they all get saved. And yet you know their pirates are going to go back to doing what they were doing. And you're ticked because God saved them. Yet, greatest revival in the Old Testament is preached by, the greatest revival with the best results in the Bible was preached by Jonah. Entire city came to Christ under Jonah. Forty years, Jeremiah preaches with not one convert. Now you tell me, in God's economy, in God's kingdom, who is rewarded in heaven? Mr. Results or Mr. Faithful? God doesn't require results from you. He requires obedience and faithfulness. Moreover, is required in stewards that may become faithful. It's about faithfulness. Whatever God's called you to do, you keep plugging away at it. Yeah, but you know, it's just not happening. I mean, I keep trying to help reach that person. I keep trying. You keep plugging away. God honors faithfulness. That's what he requires of you. Second thing you learn about God in the book of Jeremiah God is incredibly long suffering and patient. Israel thumbs their nose at Judah, thumbs their nose at God. Every time Jeremiah preaches, they thumb their nose at him. For 40 years, they thumb their nose at him. And God gives them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Why? Because he's loving, he's merciful, he's kind, he's patient, he's long-suffering. Some of you, are, some of you get really upset and bothered because you want to see a situation change. You want your boss to get fired. You want your spouse to change. You want this to happen. And you've been patient with it for a whole three days, and it's not happened. And you're wanting your kids to get it, and it's like, you know, I've worked with you for, you know, it's like three weeks, and you still haven't gotten it. I don't get it. God is incredibly patient. God is incredibly long-suffering. And God works over time and he will give people every last opportunity he can give them as God. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, a follower of God, you're going to have to be willing to do the same. You think about it for a minute. What if God wasn't patient with you? What if every time you did something wrong, God beat you over the head, whapped you upside the head with a baseball bat, Made your life miserable. The interesting passage, the interesting passage of the Bible. Here's what it says: the goodness of God leads to repentance. 
You know God's primary, primary response when we do that which is wrong? Goodness. He blesses us. He blesses us. We look at that as approval. No. It's his patience. It's his long-suffering. It's his gentleness. It's his mercy. It's his goodness. It's his loving kindness. It's his essence. That's what he's doing. Listen, we need to be the same with others. Yeah, that spouse may not be changing fast enough, but you know what? You be faithful. You be obedient. You do what you're called to do. Let God take care of the rest of it. Yeah, that boss might be crooked and lying and deceitful and everything else. Your job is to be the best employee you can be. That boss may or may not change. Your job is to be obedient and faithful. Your job is to do what you're being called to do. And that's the lesson here in Jeremiah. God is incredibly patient and incredibly faithful. But there's a final lesson too. God has a line. There is a moment in which God's, faith, God's, God's patience runs out. There is a moment in which all the way up until that line, Judah can repent and God will stop the judgment that's coming. But the second they get to the line, there is no more long-suffering. There is judgment. And that's a principle you see in the book of Jeremiah. Look, you can reject Christ every single moment of your life. But when you take your last breath, and when your heart beats for the last time, you will not face a loving, merciful, kind, tender-hearted, forgiving God. You will face the judgment of a God who draws a line. And there will be no escape from it. Up until your last breath, just like the thief on the cross, it doesn't matter about your path. You have the opportunity to trust Christ, to have a brand new life with faith in Him, even if it only lasts for a minute. But once we take our last breath and our heart beats for the last time, we face a God judgment. Every nation that Jeremiah preaches to, there came, God had that line. And God does it with us as well. I challenge you to really look at your own relationship. Make sure you put your faith and trust in Christ. If you have, then I challenge you to be faithful. To be obedient. To hang in there no matter what. And remember, God was patient with you, so you've got to be patient with others. Allow Him time to work. And um, they may or may not change. But God will always work. And God will continue to work, just like He did in the life of Judah and all the other nations. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Guide us. Direct us. Lord, in our lives it's so easy to start to become self-sufficient, to go through this week without really thinking about you or spending time with you or Lord, only turning to you when we hear about a, a tragedy or a crisis or a difficult time. Lord, may we have you ever present in all we do. God, for each of us, may we make sure that we do not reject you as so many other of these nations have. That we don't push you aside, that we don't cast you away and, and say we can live life on our own. Because Lord, on judgment day, on that day that we stand before you, God, we will face a God of righteousness and holiness and judgment. But Lord, as long as we're here, 
You're patient, you're kind, you're understanding, you're long-suffering. And so, Lord, help us not to abuse that, to take it for granted. But may we respond. And, Lord, for each of us, Lord, may we be faithful. May we hang in there. May we do what you've called us to do. May we follow you, Lord, with our whole heart. And when you ask us to do the difficult or the unusual, may our response be yes. And uh, use us. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Um, let's stand.